Welcome to episode 279 of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. This show was engineered on Sunday 15th of August 2021. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast is brought to you by Jensen USA, where you'll always find a great selection of products at amazing prices with unparalleled customer service. For more information, just go to jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. Hey everybody, it's David from the Fredcast Cycling Podcast at www.thefredcast.com. I'm one of the hosts and producers of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast. For show notes, links, and all sorts of other information, please visit our website at www.the-spokesmen.com. And now, here are the Spokesmen. Hi there, I'm Carlton Reed, and welcome to today's episode of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast, brought to you in association with Jensen USA. Today's show is a chat with Bike Portland's Jonathan Moores. Started by Jonathan 16 years ago as a one-man blog chronicling Portland's lively and eclectic cycling scene, the site is now a multimedia operation that's about to get a refresh, thanks to investment from a new co-owner. Here's our remotely recorded 65-minute chat. Jonathan, you've been doing Bike Portland for a wee while. I mean, it's at least 16 years, I believe. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, so people uh, who listen to this podcast are, are now going to be able to listen to your podcast, which is great. So there is some news, which we will get onto, of the expansion of your media empire. Uh, but first of all, I'd, I'd really like to, because I probably haven't done a great deal of, of, even though I've been to visit you in person, I probably haven't grilled you in this in this exact way. So this is a this is your life. This is a, I'd like to know more about uh, the man behind uh, the blog. What was a blog? Now a media empire. So Jonathan, first of all, are you originally from Portland or Oregon? No, I moved up here uh, with my family in 2004, so a little bit before I started Bike Portland. And where are you from? I was living for about 10 years. I lived in Santa Barbara, California, which is on the uh, central coast. Really beautiful place is where I went to, to college as well. So I stuck around there as long as I could uh, and then uh, ended up having to leave uh, because it just got so expensive and, and ridiculous in Santa Barbara. So anyway, yeah, we found our way to, to Portland. And I, in the, before that, I grew up more in Southern California. So about 30 minutes South of Los Angeles near like Long Beach, California. I've always been sort of, uh, near the coast. Okay. And then why Portland? Well, we were really like this stereotypical young family in California, sort of like uh, pulling our hair out about how expensive things had gotten down there and how strange sort of the economy and just the community was in a place like Santa Barbara, which is this, this super, super, super wealthy area. And then you have like a bunch of baristas and yoga teachers, not a lot of middle class. So that was a big red flag. And we, we were renting an apartment. We'd been renting apartments for, you know, for a long time at that point, uh, uh, and we're just ready to to live somewhere, live in a community, own a home, sort of the whole American dream shtick, you know. Uh, and this and was it, before, of course, this was before 2008 and the big financial crash when, uh, you know, you were still just supposed to buy a house and renting wasn't wasn't, wasn't as appealing. Um, so, mm. yeah, we we got out the magazines, looked at where where are cool places to live. And Portland at that mm. point was, you know, always on the top of those lists. Uh, and so I thought, you know, it's still on the West Coast. It would still be relatively close to my family in Southern California. And that's, uh, we came up and visited a friend that had moved up to the Portland area and basically went back and in a weekend saw a house we liked and bought it. And that was it. Because there is a climate difference, isn't there? There's, there's a bit of difference in weather between where you grew up and, and Portland. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But I mean, I feel like at that point, I, I was just so young, I didn't really think through the decision that much <laughs> to some degree. I mean, which we can get to later. I mean, I lived two blocks away from a freeway before I became much, much of a transportation activist like I am now. I would never have bought this house so close to freeway had I known then what I know now. But also, I mean, I think on the weather thing, you know, actually... The weather in California can be pretty boring. Southern California weather, it's its always the same. It's hazy sunshine in mid-70s every single day. And it's, I got to tell you, it gets kind of boring. Nothing ever changes. You don't have clouds and seasons and darkness and water from the sky. So I, I really like i really like the climate up here. 
Although you have had a heat wave recently, haven't you? I mean, you, you might still be having it because you've, you've had some extremes there. Well, yeah, of course, of course. Nothing, nothing is normal now. So now we're getting a lot, lot more of that heat and dryness that from Southern California is coming up here for sure with climate change. Mm. And you said we before. You said young family. So, so who are you talking about? Right. So I had a daughter who was a few years old uh, in in Santa Barbara, and then since we've moved up to Portland, uh, my wife and I have had two more kids. So we've got we've got an eighteen year old who's heading off to college. We have a sixteen year old who will be a junior in high school, and then I've got my boy who's uh, ten and going into fifth grade. Right. Okay. And your wife. My wife, Julie, yep, she works actually for the city of Portland in the uh, signals and street lighting division. So uh, that's that's interesting. Uh, she, uh, you know, it, she mostly went, you know, that's she's had that job for maybe four or five years. So for the most part, when I was really building Bike Portland and throwing everything into it and working all day, every day and all night, she was really keeping everything going and, you know, looking over at me like, you know, what the heck is going on? Why are you trying to, you know, have a blog, support our family kind of thing? So it's, it was about four or five years ago that it was kind of, uh, you know, still not, let's say, working out financially uh, for the, for Bike Portland. So she was sort of like, uh, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to get a job. Was there any friction there? If, because you, you were, you were doing stuff <laughs> potentially quite critical of the city and here's your wife working for the city. Well, there wasn't friction. I mean, you know, it's, I guess it's, it's okay that she's not sort of directly in the department that I cover most, right? So she's in signals and street lighting, which there is sort of a hard line there. She's not working on the planning. And if she was in the bike planning section, or she was in the, the, uh, the project section, that, that may be a little more awkward. But even then, uh, I mean, she's a professional, I'm a professional. Uh, I think there are probably people at the city of Portland who are aware of that. And are kind of like, you know, uh, looking at it with a little bit of a side eye and wondering what's going on there. But I think as long as we, we, we keep it all, all on the up and up, uh, nothing, nothing bad will come of it. I mean, I think the other context of it is, is that she got the job after there had already been really a split at the city of Portland and bike Portland. I mean, back in the early days of bike Portland, we were sort of more like, you know, partners in a way it was kind of like, they saw me more as an advocate, you know, part of their team to help them get their news out. And uh, there was definitely more of a collegial atmosphere, but that had all definitely eroded by the time she started working there. So they'd already built in sort of systems to ignore, ignore bike Portland and sort of create a wall between us. So I do not have the same relationship with them that I'd had in the early years. Okay. Now pedal backwards. You're talking about, you, you got a house and it, it was the same house you got then if you stayed in the one with the, near the freeway, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. We're still in the same place. Been, uh, you moved here yet. Oh, four. So yeah. 17 years, I guess now. Okay, so when you moved to Portland, you and you said before you, you weren't a, a, a transportation activist, but were you a cyclist in some way, shape, or form? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've been riding bikes since I was a kid, and pretty much even in my professional life. I mean, even in college, I, I was a big bike rider. I raced a lot. I raced on the Santa Barbara UC Santa Barbara road team, and as in the mountain bike club. So I was super super competitive racer before I moved up here. Um, and I, I, when I, one of the first things I, I did out of college was worked at Chris King precision components, which, which folks might know the, the headset and hub makers, uh, they were based in Santa Barbara. So I was a racer and you know how it goes in the industry. You kind of just uh, gravitate toward the biggest bike company in your town. <laughs> so that's what mm -hmm. I did, uh, worked over there. And then, uh, after that, you know, I did some PR work freelance for a bit in, in the bike industry and, uh, and worked for a couple bike brands and stuff. So I have been around the bike world, basically, basically my whole, my whole adult life. Uh, so yeah, and that's how you're making money before you moved in the bike industry. Yeah, I'd I'd started a I'd started a public relations media relations firm, and I was working for myself. I had some clients in the publishing industry, so I worked with authors and publishing houses, and I also always maintained a client or two or three in in the biking world. Uh, and I was really excited. I was I was building that business. I loved it. Um, I, I kind of was up and coming, you know, I was young, just starting out and I, and I had, you know, I was working for some companies I really liked. Uh, and yeah, that's what I would have been doing had, had I not sort of, uh, found my way to being a blogger. I would have, uh, probably still been having my, my media and PR firm because I, I liked doing that work. Uh, it was interesting. It just wasn't uh, as interesting as Bike Portland. So then you started a, a, the blog and yeah. then this is like, you had a day job, and then you yeah. started this. I mean, I yeah, so tell us about that, 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 the very origins of, of <laughs> right. how you started. 
Right. So when I moved to Portland, uh, I definitely had my eye on the bicycle community and the bike scene here. I thought uh, my first inclination was let's, you know, I was going to get involved with the bike community and maybe I'd get, you know, like a nonprofit as like a pro bono client of my PR business. Right. That was kind of how I was thinking. So I instantly joined any email list I could and was really just starting to get to know people kind of like looking out at the bike rides and seeing what was happening and starting to meet people. Um, and I thought that's what I would do. I would maybe help maybe a bike org, uh, you know, get online or whatever they needed help with in terms of media relations and stuff like that. I was also like tinkering with building websites for folks and that sort of thing. So that's how I thought I would get involved. But, you know, one thing just led to another. Um, what happened was uh, it, it's sort of at this, it's the same amount of time I started looking into the bike scene here in, in Portland. And again, for folks that don't know, 2004, 2005 was really like this amazing moment in Portland for cycling. Uh, a lot of the groups that are that were known for and a lot of the like creative street culture that became a lot more well known in the subsequent years was just getting started. You know, like we had an all female mini bike dance team. We had this thing called Bike Summer and Pedal Palooza, which was this amazing, you know, several weeks of bike events. We had the Zoo Bombers. So we had some really, really fun. We had a bunch of tall bikes and freak bike groups going on. So I came here from California, never having seen anything like that. And, and I was just blown away. I mean, to me, cycling was you know, who could get up the hill fastest, who was, who could be the most aggro on the single track. And then if you wanted to, you know, goof around, you'd, you'd get a cruiser bike and go down to the beach and maybe pop a wheelie. Like that was the extent of interesting bike culture be, that I knew of before moving to Portland. And I got here and I, and I mean, I would look out my front window and there'd be 30 people dressed like bunnies ringing their bells on Easter. And I was like, what in the world is going on? Like, this is really fantastic. And I just loved it. I couldn't, I couldn't, you know, we had street festivals and I'd look up and see clowns riding tall bikes, jousting with each other while they're on fire. Like stuff really blew me away. And so it was around that time that I got an email popped into this uh, group's email list that I followed this bike group. And it was someone from the Oregonian, which is sort of the, the newspaper of record in Portland in, in our state. And they said, Hey, there's this new thing called blogs. We're, we're, we want to have a network of blogs. And we thought, of course, since it's Portland and this is Bike City USA, we want to have someone write about bikes on our website. Uh, so this is the Oregonians website. They're looking for a bike blogger, let's say. And so I saw that and I was like, well, that's perfect. I mean, I'm a, I'm a news guy. I know how to write. Uh, I'm doing PR, media relations. I'm super excited about the bike scene. Absolutely. So I remember firing off an email back to that person and just, you know, really selling myself like, oh my gosh, I, I totally want to do this. Just sign me up. So they gave me the gig. And so for, that was like April, 2005. So that was my first uh, sort of experience with seeing my stuff published on the internet. And basically I would email this person a few paragraphs about something I did on my bike or some reflection I had about the bike community. And then a couple hours later, it would appear on organlive.com, which was the Oregonian's old website. And I just thought that was amazing. It was super interesting to me, that whole process of publishing my stuff and then documenting the local bike scene here. And uh, then once that happened, I really got, got into blogging. I was like, it, it just something kind of shifted for me. And I also saw how blogs and sort of the democratization of the internet and publishing in general, I also saw how that could impact my business as a PR person, as a media person. And I started to realize that, you know, I would probably be helping clients start blogs and help clients start telling their story online in, in different ways. So I just sort of dove headfirst into the whole online blogging world and started researching it and, and, and uh, you know, reading up on it, joining a lot of blogs and just reading everything, basically. And so it wasn't too long after I started doing it for the Oregonian, doing this blog for the Oregonian, that I realized how just uh, how lacking their tools were. Like basically their whole uh, their whole format was just really kind of old school. Once I saw what was happening with TypePad and, and Blogspot and these other tools that I could just have a few clicks and have my own blog, right? So my gear started turning like, you know, basically, why the heck would I do this for the Oregonian when I could just do it for myself? And I remember there were a few back and forths where – the folks at the Oregonian were asking me for advice in terms of like, what can we do to make our blog network better? And I was sending them emails with all these lists of things like, here's, here's what blogging is. Like they didn't even have permalinks. People couldn't comment on our blog posts back in those early days. And I was getting frustrated that this new bike blog that I'd started for them, you know, was sort of being saddled uh, by not having the latest tools that I was reading about online. So once I realized that, you know, they weren't going to sort of take my advice and improve their own uh, blogs on the Oregonians website. 
I just was like, I'm out of here, you know? So it only did that for a couple of months. And then I, you know, like I said, clicked a few times, uh, found uh, WordPress and uh, got a domain, bikeportland.org, just on a whim. I got the .org thinking I might want to be a nonprofit or I just liked how it sounded. Uh, and so that was it. Paid nine ninety nine for the domain and uh, in July of 2005, started publishing stuff on Bike Portland. And then the design, has it changed much over the years? <laughs> it's really funny. I mean, it, it hasn't really changed a ton. I mean, I got a free theme. And this is something that, you know, Carlton, once I started doing Bike Portland for several years and, and people were paying me pretty good money to advertise on it, I always thought to myself, man, you know, like I got the mayor calling me. I'm getting, you know, several hundred dollar ads from people for these banners. And I don't really have any overhead. I mean, I'm paid, you know, I got a free free design, basically. Uh, mm-hmm. I got a domain for $9 a year. And I'm publishing this stuff. I mean, it was just so amazing to me. And I always felt like how that was always so exciting to me that that, that, that could happen. So yeah, it's basically the, and I'm still, I hate to admit this, but I'm still basically using the same theme that I, that I started with in 2005, which, sh- which I think you could laugh at, but it also shows you the sort of, you know, how, how good of a tool WordPress is and, mm-hmm. and sort of the power of the internet in terms of some guy who at some point created this theme and put it out on the internet for free. Now I have to say that I've also spent, you know, thousands of dollars with web people to tweak it and make it work and make it, make mm. my theme stable and all that stuff. But for the most part, it looks the same. And we can get to that later in terms of like, you know, that's one thing that I've talked about with my investor here was, you know, paying for a, a, the massive sort of finally getting a massive update and upgrade to the site. So, that, so it looks a lot different. Mm. And we will get on to that, that, that fantastic news. And it was like, you kind of, uh, I mean, I, I, I subscribe to your newsletter, the the, the kind of the insider um, mm. Bike Portland newsletter you send out every week. So you, you had this news last week, which was fantastic. And then you, you sent me another one this week. And I thought, I must talk to Jonathan about that. So we'll get on to that. However, mm. I wanted to, uh, I know this because I have been there and I've I've seen this with my own eyes. And I was just, as as you were, I was just blown away when I saw the, the bike culture in, in Portland, which is which is something to behold. But let, for those people who haven't been to Bikeborn, perhaps even haven't even come across this this the, 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 these cultures, let's go through them one by one. So, I think you kind of mentioned the Sprockets first. You've got a dance mm-hmm. troupe, or you had a dance yeah. troupe. So, so yeah, t- tell me about that first. Now we'll go through each of these little culture things one it's by hard one. To... Right. So, so there was a group called the Zoo Bombers, which were people who would take the Max, which is our light rail. And they would catch it, you know, downtown and they would ride it to the top of this hill that we have, which is right up above Portland. It's where the Rose Garden is. It's where the zoo is. Right. So it's a hill right next to downtown Portland. And at some point, someone realized it'd be fun to take little kids bikes. So, you know, 16 inch <laughs> wheels and they would all pile on the light rail line, the max, and they would pay a buck or whatever. Actually, let's be honest, they didn't pay. They'd go up there. And again, mm. they met it at 11 at night, let's say. Right. So it's a nighttime mm. thing. They go up to the top of this hill. They hike their bikes up to the very, very top in this beautiful park and they hang out. They get to know one another, uh, you know, maybe have a, have a beverage or two or whatever. Uh, and then they get on their bikes. They walk over to the road. Again, it's pitch black on their, they're on mini, <laughs> mini bikes and they would just bomb down the hill. And it's a really fun downhill. These are sharp corners, narrow roads, really steep. And they would end up back where? Back at the light rail stop. And then they'd take the train back to the top. And this became this became like a religion for people. I mean, they would do it every Sunday. You'd know where to meet. In the same way that, say, critical mass would happen in a city if you're into bike, you know, bike stuff. Mm. Uh, you could rely on it. You know there'd be people there. You'd know you'd see the same faces there. And these people started to build, you know, really strong bonds and sort of grow the group. Uh, and it became a real it became a real thing. You know, you'd see it. Uh, BBC did a video on it at one point, you know, so it starts getting attention, right? It's very, very part of the sort of Portland weird ethic. Uh, and and, it, and it, it created this whole community, obviously, right? So there were just dozens and dozens of people that would show up and you could come if you'd never done it before. They had a whole uh, library of bikes down there uh, that they would loan out to you so you could take one of these kids' bikes. So that was how Zoo Bomb sort of was established. And then there were there were women that were showing up and sort of, I guess, at some point, some of the women thought, well, hey, you know, what's going on here? You know, we need to have kind of our own thing. And I think it was the history. And I'm not, you know, I wasn't like necessarily inside that scene. Um, so this is just what I've learned from knowing folks. But at some point, uh, you know, the women brought up their own bikes. And then there was a party or some event where they ended up dancing on them. Anyways, long story short, they created something called the Sprockets. 
And this was an all-female mini bike dance team. And it's just what it sounds like. They have these synchronized dances that they would do. And they were all pink, by the way. They would, you know, go to thrift stores and get ragged up pink clothing, you know, so think of pink fishnets and skirts and tank tops. And then they had their bikes all painted pink. And these are little kid bikes for the most part or, or BMX bikes. And they would do these really fun dances. So 2005, six, seven, there was an annual, big annual event here that they would do. And then they start getting booked out at tons of events. So this becomes a real thing and they have practices. Mm-hmm. And anyway, it's just wonderful. At one point, my wife joined and we, we went out, New Belgium Brewing paid uh, paid the Sprockets to go and do a tour all through the West Coast. <laughs> they got them a bus <laughs> and they went and did the New Belgium tour to fat events. Uh, they were a real a really amazing group and just the most wonderful people you could ever imagine. So uh, that was really fun, but that was a sprocket. So just try to imagine a city and a culture where something like that could, could exist. And there's all sorts of other <laughs> ancillary things around, you know, the sprockets that made them possible on uh, just this, all kinds of different groups and, and bike clubs and things that were happening. Was that the, is it the coalescing of like the keep Portland weird vibe which is which is kind of it is the city is famous for and a growing bike culture were they feeding off each other how how come it started like this yeah it's really important i mean it didn't just come out of nowhere i mean portland had a legacy for cycling that i think is is definitely unmatched in america i mean 70s 80s you know in the 80s we had our mayor biking to work and there we had Mm. you know huge bike to work festivals in the eighties downtown and just amazing buy-in, you know, one of the leading congressmen in, in the U S you know, the United States congressman Earl Blumenauer uh, was, you know, previously in charge of transportation in Portland. Uh, and, you know, in the late eighties, early nineties really ushered in, uh, you know, definitely Portland's era of being the leading cycling city in America and got the first bike lanes, the first blue bike lane. So this was a city in Portland here that, you know uh, you know, we fought, we fought a freeway project. We were the first city to say no to the federal government expanding, you know, a freeway here and building a freeway uh, and, you know, giving a bunch of federal subsidy. People here organized and said, no, let's invest that money in light rail. So this is a very progressive city when it, when it came to transportation. So that's sort of the legacy that all this culture was really built on. You had bicycling was just sort of like in the mix here. It was always in the water. Uh, and you had this, um, you know, this traveling, uh, this traveling thing came through here in like 2003. It was called Bike Summer, and it got it went to several different cities on the West Coast: Vancouver, Los Angeles, other places. Uh, and the people that organized that thought it was so much fun that they wanted to keep it going. And I think that was really sort of the the big genesis of a lot of the uh, sort of creative bike culture in Portland. And, and once you know 2004 came around, we kept that festival going, and then it was just off to the races, and we had all sorts of interesting uh, interesting things happening around cycling here. Interesting. You also mentioned before the jousting, uh, the tall bikes, the pedal palooza. So describe describe some of that because some of the people are the same and some of the people are different. Yeah. So just like any healthy cultural ecosystem, you know, people start forming groups and then people spin off of those groups and spin off of those groups and want to do their own thing. So, you know, we had a group called like Chunk 666, which would have this, it was this really interesting sort of underground secretive group that had a zine and they had this big annual thing called the Chunkathlon. And these were people in their garage tinkering together with welding torches, putting together huge chopper bikes or um, just, you know, bikes with three frames welded to each other. So you have to basically climb way up it and you're super tall. Um, And at this Chunkathlon, they would have just these really remarkable, really wild events, uh, where they would be, you know, there would be tons of people around and they would, you know, the, the main attraction was jousting. So they would get these huge poles and on the end of the pole, they'd have like a, a boxing glove or some other implement and they would just pedal at each other on these tall bikes as fast as they could. And the person who fell over lost and the person who stayed upright won. But of course, around the edge, you have hundreds of people throwing beer cans and, you know, uh, you know, baby plastic, baby doll heads and food. It was just this, you know, the fires being lit. Some of the bikes were, were lit on fire themselves. So, yeah, that was one part of it. You know, there was another whole group of clowns. There were actual, you know, clowns that would go around and, and do clowning. Uh, and they would, they always had bikes involved with them. There was this house where they would all meet. Uh, and every Thursday there was a street festival in one part of town. Uh, and there would be a bunch of really creative things happening there around biking. Uh, so, and the sprockets would show up, right? So, and then you had things like, you know, had pedal palooza, which is really kind of the engine, which was this several week event where anybody can put a bike event on it, on this uh, sort of community calendar. And it really encouraged people to lead their own rides. 
Uh, and that, that I think is probably the most important part of Portland's bike culture. And, and this year in 2021, it's going strong. It's three months long this year. So it started as a, as a, as a two week thing. I mean, we're talking 300, 400 events, uh, at the height of Petalpalooza. There's, there could be 10 events in one day. We're talking every day of the week. And this is everything from let's go visit a bunch of bakeries on our bikes to let's all wear the color teal. And just just go to the park and, and take pictures of ourselves wearing funny costumes. A lot of them are dance party rides where you have different DJs and there'll be a theme. Maybe there's a big one. One of the biggest rides is called Prince versus Bowie, where one faction is Bowie fans with the big speaker system. One faction is Bowie, uh, you know, Prince fans, and they're all dressed up like the artists and they go through the town uh, playing music and stopping at parks and other places to uh, to dance and you know just hang out. So. And, and that's that's not even touching the surface of the amazing rides. Coming up this week, there's going to be a bike play where a local theater group has a bike-themed uh, theater act that they go do in different sets around town, and hundreds of people will follow them on their bikes to these different scenes in the play that they will act out live. So it's really amazing outpouring of, of just creativity, uh, and it's all centered around cycling and everybody's on a bike. Uh, and so that's kind of this environment that has really existed through all these changes in, in all these years in Portland and is still going strong today. I'm really happy to say. So Jonathan, when yeah, that, that, that description, and it, it, it absolutely marries with what I've seen and it's just, it's unbelievable to, to see and it's fantastic. But do you think there are some people who are attracted by that and become, you know, cyclists, people on bikes, but by the same token, there are some people who, who might've become cyclists. I thought, Oh God, I can't become one of those people. Do you think it's, it has a, you know, a yin and a yang here? Well, yeah, I don't want people to get the wrong idea when I, I was just describing or just some of the sort of like, you know, um, some of the, you know, some of the subculture groups. Um, a lot of this cultural stuff is really broadly appealing. I mean, we have cargo bike groups, we have family biking groups, I mean, we have a kidical mass that's really popular. So it, it's really, there's stuff going on that attracts all different types of people. Um, but yeah, I think what happened in the, early aughts, so 2006, 7, 8, when this cultural stuff was really front and center and it was, you know, Bike Portland was really just coming on strong. We're getting a lot of attention for the bike culture here. It did, I think, probably turn some people off because the focus was really these subculture groups. And I think a lot of people looked at that and said, well, I don't want to go get naked. I mean, we had the largest naked ride in the world, hands down. Mm -hmm. I think at one Mm -hmm. point they counted, you know, 17,000 people, 12,000, 15,000. It shut the city down. It was so big. And so naked and amazing, right? And that's what I think a lot of people looked at the sort of the quote unquote cycling culture in Portland. And they saw, you know, grown women wearing pink skirts, dancing with their bikes. They saw naked people. They saw, you know, clowns on tall bikes. But that that never really was the full picture, but it had an outsized impact on what people thought about the bike culture. So I think it ultimately probably did turn some people off or it allowed, it allowed people to have this caricature of the bike culture in Portland that, that wasn't really true. It just happened to be the one that made the, the most noise. Um, and I think, you know, if you fast forwarded several years, uh, the bike scene here evolved a lot and has gotten away from a lot of that stuff. I mean, the zoo bombers are basically don't exist. The sprockets are basically not around anymore. Pedal blues is going strong, but many of these groups have sort of faded out. A lot of people are married now and have, have jobs and, mm. you know, moved away or moved to houses, right? A lot of the people that powered a lot of these early groups, it was definitely a, f- a cultural phase. Um, so, and that was part of it is, um, so things change so much and the, the, the bike culture and advocacy scene has evolved considerably. Uh, so it was weird for me as being someone who is documenting all these groups and documenting all this interesting stuff. Um, and it really, in some ways, really powered a lot of what made Bike Portland, I think, special was covering, showing photos of things that, on bikes that people had never really seen. Uh, and then once those things evolved and went away, well, then it was kind of like, well, then what does Bike Portland do then? You know, how does it continue to evolve? So we can get on to that next. I don't want to jump the gun here, though. Well, I kind of I want to I want to keep to this topic about the, the, the kind of the culture or, and, and the many. And you're right. There's, it's a very broad culture. It's not just. Mm-hmm. The, the pedal uh, paloozas and the, the and the zoom moments and stuff. There is the, the critical mass and there is the, the cargo bike culture. I, yeah, I know that. But anybody from the outside, say in Europe, who is into bikes and 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 perhaps has come across Bike Portland as one of the major advocacy stroke uh, blog news whatever uh, <laughs> places to go to see, will assume that if they landed in Portland, it would be like Amsterdam. And that every single person, you know, every second person at least, 
would be on a bicycle. Yet it's not like that. So, so tell us about the the, the actual mode share of cycling yeah. in 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 Portland. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely not not like that at all. I think there was a time uh, between two thousand five and two thousand eight where we had our biggest increases in in bicycling mode share, um, and people should know that for for an American city, we're number one in terms of mode mm-hmm. share. Uh, I th- we've definitely plateaued. We've even lost a little bit, but in terms of big, you know relatively big. I think we're one of the top 20 cities in terms of size. Uh, of course, there's college towns where people bike more, but I'm talking, you know, real major m- metropolitan cities in America. The more people bike to work according to the official data than any other city. Um, but it's America. And that, that number means that, that you're only at six or 7%, which is really sad, mm. right? When you compare it to the 35% or so uh, in, in real cycling cities like Amsterdam, and Copenhagen. So yeah, it doesn't feel like that when you get here. There there are streets and places in the morning peak and in the afternoon peak after work uh, that you could see a lot of traffic. But of course, now we don't even have those commuting peaks because of what happened with COVID and everybody's travel patterns are so much different. Um, yeah, so it, you know there was a moment when there was a lot of optimism, and I think that's part of the the Portland biking story. It's certainly part of the bike Portland story. Is the first several years of this site when I was doing all these things uh, and posting all these stuff, and it just felt like there was this cultural moment that was super exciting um i think i felt like we would get there i felt like we were on our way to having 30 percent mm-hmm. mode share i mean it was just a foregone conclusion in my mind i mean there was such optimism i had such confidence we had someone who was in the mayor's office who was a great bike uh, champion someone who i knew really well and we, we did stuff with when they as they were coming up through the ranks and they got elected mayor in you know 2008 and we thought i mean i thought and i think i sort of have always sort of reflected a lot of the community's, you know, feelings in a, in a way, um, which is it's on, like, we're going to get there. We're going to get 20%, 30%. And then we're going to have something even more special than Copenhagen and Amsterdam because, you know, over there, they like to say, Oh, biking is just like a vacuum cleaner. Everybody has one. And I always think that's just super boring. You know, it's too bad for them. They don't have any creative fun culture. They don't celebrate cycling. And my mm-hmm. thing was always, you know, Portland's going to have both. We're going to have, the wonderful cultural celebrations of cycling and the fun around it and all the community around it. And we're going to have the mode split uh, to match those other places where, where you do leave your house and everybody's on a, on a bike. Unfortunately, it, it didn't go that way. Uh, the, the culture to, to a large degree has, uh, you know, that moment is over. Uh, our trajectory on mode split is certainly uh, plateaued, if not, you know, stagnated plateaued and has dipped a little bit. So, you know, we find ourselves in 2021 in a much different place than I would have expected if you talked to me in 2010. Mm. Now, you talked about the, the 1970s and the 1980s and, 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 and going through into the 2000s uh, for how Bike Portland became, or how, sorry, how Portland became a, you know, a, a city that could then uh, have a, a, a publication such as Bike Portland. But in my book, Bike Boom, I did talk about how there was you, you could almost go back to the 1880s 1890s and and when the streets were first laid down in portland which which is also a factor so portland is different to many other american cities because of its street structure so right I, yeah there are there there are a lot of factors in that and, and that's true I, the, one of the coolest things about portland is this map that i have in my kitchen i've got a, i've also got it down here uh, in my office it's an 1896 map of cycling routes in Portland, 1896, produced by, uh, it was printed by a, uh, a local bike club in 1896. That was, you know, almost two decades, maybe 15 years at least before the first car was sold in Portland. We had a, an established map at the taverns and everything. It's got all the best routes. You know, the street I live on is, is almost right on that map in 1896 as a biking route. So yeah. And then that, that, that same sort of grid, you know, was, was, uh, further sort of like, you know, solidified with the fact that we had a really strong streetcar network later than a lot of other cities did. And we never broke that grid. Uh, we've had a boundary in, around this city uh, in terms of how growth could happen. So a lot of the same progressive transportation stuff I talked about earlier, we also had very progressive land use policies and development policies, uh, something people around here is very, very proud of. And that meant, yes, that we had from a long time, we had a grid of streets relatively small blocks, you know, uh, that means mm. if, when I say a grid of streets, it means you can get on a street and know it's going to go cross town without having to jog all around. So those things definitely helped, uh, helped or factored into to making us sort of more of a bike city. 
Mm. So yesterday we had the IPCC's climate change report, which has got to be heeded, one would hope, uh, by world leaders. So you may have uh, thought that you're not going to get that mode share till recently, but maybe with that report, with COP26 in Glasgow in November, with the world actually finally waking up to the fact that we have got to get rid of fossil fuel technology, electric cars, even if they came on stream, you know, in the next 20 to 30 years, and even if everybody went went on to to getting electric cars, which we know is, is pretty much a pipe dream anyway, but even if it did happen, it still wouldn't solve stuff. So we have got to change the way because we know transport is one of, you know, at least 25% of emissions is transport. And an awful lot of that is road transport. So are you now maybe more optimistic after news like yesterday that something could change? Or do you think people will absolutely just bed down and the mode shares you've got now are pretty much the mode shares you're going to have in 20 years time? Yeah, I mean, it's a mix. I, I, I am still optimistic that our mode change can tick back up and we can you know, kind of get back to that trajectory that, that I was so excited about back in the, you know, 2008, 2010 era. Um, absolutely. If I, if I wasn't optimistic, it would be hard to continue doing bike Portland. I've got to hold out some hope that we can get there. Um, you know, and that, that gets back to part of the cultural milieu sort of, of, of Portland and Portlanders is that there, there is a tremendous deep well of activism here uh, and people that, um, you know, don't necessarily, uh, tune out in, in situations like this, but they turn out, they go out into the street, they form groups, they join uh, activists, you know, organizations and stuff like that. So I, I think the climate report uh, is going to hit everybody. You know, everybody's going to be solemn for a few days here and figure out what they're going to do. But I think ultimately it's going to, it's going to definitely increase urgency up the pressure on local leaders to do stuff. And, and we're getting close there. I think, you know, unfortunately Portland has uh, in a lot of ways forgotten about cycling uh, it, it's kind of a, a big thing that's happened for the last decade uh, for various reasons uh, that, that, you know, is a whole conversation around, you know, why Portland is for, sort of forgotten about cycling. Um, but I think, you know, it's going to come back. You can't keep it down. Uh, cycling is, it's, everybody has a bike in their garage here. They're just waiting to use it. They're waiting to dust it off and be given the chance to do it in a safe way, in a convenient way. And that's not, that's not going to change. Those bikes aren't going to vanish. So, uh, people love doing, love biking here. It, it, it's, it, it's always been a bike city and always will be. Um, but it's going to take some shifts, right? We're going to have to not just keep striping, you know, unpainted, unprotected mm-hmm. bike lanes uh, while we continue to make driving as easy as it is and easier. We've got to actually, you know, do more stuff to discourage driving, which I think the city is doing and the region's doing. They're just not doing it fast enough. I think that's the big new tension is the pace of change. Um, you know, if I'm a politician, I could list off a ton of things that I'm doing uh, on to to make transport, you know, burn less uh, emissions, a huge long list that would sound great. Unfortunately, it's not enough. Right. So it's about pace of change and activists and people on the ground want it to happen a lot faster than any politician I've seen really has been willing to stand up and, and, and you know, deem it so. So that that's okay, what, John, you know, Jonathan, hold, hold that thought. If sure. if if I was going to make you. The transport commissioner, whatever the the role would be, that would knock heads together and would change. You know, somehow I was able to just you know, maybe President Biden comes along and says, "Right, cities, you're going to have to appoint uh, you know, really good, uh, green-minded transport commissioners next week." And you, amazingly, were freed because of what the things we're going to be talking about soon uh, to become that transport commissioner. You were able to do stuff. You were able to boost bike share in Portland. How would you do it? Give me your one, five, ten-year plans, please. <laughs> well, I think, I mean, there's a lot of things. I mean, uh, you know, there, there's got to be a way to sort of up the speed with which we do projects we've already agreed to. Uh, if, you, if you're talking about one year, five year, ten year, you know, we've got a lot. Of, the city has a lot of great uh, projects in the pipeline uh, that just are taking too long to get out onto the street for various reasons. And I think by political fiat, someone should be able to stand up and say, "Okay, whatever paperwork's you know being problematic, whatever permitting's being problematic, we need to up the urgency on this new bike path or on this new road redesign because of climate change, because this is urgent, because it's an emergency." So right there, you know, you could 
quick, you could speed up a lot of things we're already doing. I mean, the other big thing is, you know, uh, stop waiting for super expensive, big capital projects and just do quicker things with, you know, concrete barricades. And you can easily go out. What I would do is just do an audit of the central city, let's say, and some of the, all the different town center nodes. So even out further away from the central city, audit the bigger streets everywhere. We don't need the excess capacity for driving of which there are dozens and Mm. hundreds of lane miles of just streets Mm. that we allow people to drive in that become de facto no-go zones. If you're on a bike, because you're afraid you could just stick those into a database, spit out a report, and then you go over to those streets and you've got thousands of concrete barriers and you just start start laying them out and you create mobility lanes. We have to get away from thinking of bike lanes and, you know, transit. We need to make mobility lanes in addition to transit lanes, but let's say mobility lanes where it's people walking, it's, it's scooters and any other electric device that's out there, hoverboards, you know, one wheels, you know, self-balancing unicycles electric bikes, bikes. There are so many new vehicle types that are just waiting to be used um, that aren't bikes and aren't walking and aren't cars. We need to find space. So you, you, you cordon off a bunch of lane miles of road all around the city with, with concrete barriers. Again, that's essential. Right now, the city's still painting. They're still painting bike lanes with no protection. That, that Those are useless. People will not use those. and Or they put out plastic posts, which are almost useless, and people run into them, and they're really, they don't look nice, and those don't inspire people either. What inspires people is concrete. Uh, you need actual physical barriers. So if we created a whole network of those and we were strategic about connecting residential areas to destination areas, you would see a massive amount of people get out and start riding. And once people start riding and walking and using their scooters, then you can just basically do whatever you want because you have that sort of constituencies there. And then the politics changes, right? Then you have a lot of people who are worried about taking space away from drivers. All that goes away. And we just, we haven't done those things. And, and I'm convinced if we even did one of them, if we did one physically protected, really convenient direct route from a major residential area to a, to a major work and destination area, uh, it would it would just make advocating for this stuff so much easier because I can guarantee that it would be flooded with people that weren't driving. It would give everybody something to look at, point to and say, see, that's what we've been yelling and screaming about all these years. Mm. And that you, the city, have been so timid and so afraid to do for a long list of reasons. Oh, your engineers say it doesn't work. Oh, the drivers will be mad. Oh, the business associations were all these things. All those would melt away and people go, oh, I'm, I'm absolutely assured of that. And it's frustrating that, um, you know, that that still hasn't happened. I mean, a lot of times, you know, I'm definitely a, I'm definitely a journalist and a media person first and foremost. But the, every time I talk about this, I, I get so frustrated and I just think, gosh, what? maybe I should just go full, full bore into, you know, joining an advocacy group or something because it makes me so mad. But I also think it's important to have, you know, someone independent and have media. So, so, so that's where I am. (laughs) Mm, And let's get on to that. But first of all, uh, let's go across to David, who'll uh, talk about our show sponsor. Take it away, David. Hey, Carlton, thanks so much. And it's it's always my pleasure to talk about our advertiser. This is a longtime loyal advertiser. You all know who I'm talking about. It's Jensen USA at JensenUSA.com slash the spokesman. I've been telling you for years now, years, that Jensen is the place where you can get a great selection of every kind of product that you need for your cycling lifestyle at amazing prices. And what really sets them apart Because, of course, there's lots of online retailers out there. But what really sets them apart is their unbelievable support. When you call and you've got a question about something, you'll end up talking to one of their gear advisors. And these are cyclists. I've been there. I've seen it. These are folks who who ride their bikes to and from work. These are folks who ride at lunch, who go out on group rides after work because they just enjoy cycling so much. Uh, and, And so you know that when you call, you'll be talking to somebody who has knowledge of the products that you're calling about. If you're looking for a new bike, whether it's a mountain bike, a road bike, a gravel bike, a fat bike, what are you looking for? Go ahead and check them out. Jensen USA, they are the place where you will find everything you need for your cycling lifestyle. It's jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. We thank them so much for their support and we thank you for supporting Jensen USA. All right, Carlton, let's get back to the show. Uh, thanks, David. And we are back with Jonathan Maus. And, and Jonathan is now going to talk about, um, or I'm going to ask him about the good news that he told uh, his his newsletter uh, recipients last week. 
So, Jonathan, you've had an investment. <laughs> yeah, 16 years in, and I've got my first seed funding. <laughs> so mm-hmm. uh, it's funny, but yeah. So I got, I got, I've basically sold part of Bike Portland. Uh, so through all these years, I've basically made this thing survive with smoke and mirrors. Uh, it's never really afforded me the ability to to pay myself much at all, or you know, do any of the stuff like have retirement or, or any kind of health insurance or that sort of thing. Uh, so. Finally, uh, you know, I, I had someone in the community step up after I made a mention of it in a newsletter about how I wanted to invest in some new things to do video and other other things, but I couldn't afford the equipment. So somebody, long story short, stepped up and said, "Hey, how much do you how much do you need?" And this was a, a wonderful person in the community who uh, wants to support media that they think is pushing for the stuff they believe in. In this case, the person is you know really like like we said before wants to wants to tick that uh, that that line up of uh, you know. Know, fighting climate change and getting more people to bike and and all that stuff. So uh, this person wanted to invest in Bike Portland because they they know that uh, operations like like Bike Portland basically can't survive otherwise. And it's true. Uh, it, you know, without this investor, uh, it, I don't know if I would even be talking to you today. I mean, it, it gets uh, in some ways it gets better and more exciting and easier to keep going every year because you've been around so long. But in, but in other ways, in other real sort of real life ways, uh, it, it became harder and harder for me to justify basically my life's work uh, without, without enough compensation, without enough financial security, and without enough ability to build it into what I want to build it to. I mean, uh, when I was going back and forth with my investor, uh, all I was doing was talking about things I wanted to do for the site. Uh, and at one point, I remember, you know, I think you mentioned something and, and basically was kind of trying to needle me a little bit and say, hey, I think there's something else here. And I, and I, and I was honest and said, it, there is something else there. And that's the fact that, you know, I need to get a raise and I need to make sure that my family can, can breathe a little easier and that my wife doesn't have to be, you know, wondering what the hell I'm doing all the time, you know, devoting so much of my life to this, uh, to this work. So that, that's part of it too. Uh, and, and so now it's, uh, now that's the fun part, uh, fun and hard part. Uh, I had sort of a honeymoon of, of being excited about it. That's, that's already long over. <laughs> I'm actually, now I'm in the phase of, of really trying to build and, and trying to do right, uh, by that investment and take by Portland sort of to its next, uh, next chapters. So that investor is Mike, Mike Perham. Yeah, is that, Mike, is that, Mike is Perham. That? Yeah. So someone Perham, who's, okay. uh, so he's made his money from software development. So I, I looked on him on, on Twitter. So yeah. he's got something called Sidekick. I mean, these are things I don't know about, but I'm sure people who are yeah. into into certain types of software know what Sidekick is. I think he was saying he's just got his hundred millionth download. Yeah. Um, so he's he's was he 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 appears to be from his like profile. He appears to be like a transportation cyclist. Yeah. So he's he was basically a reader of yours. Yeah, Mike's been a reader for a while. He's he's funded the site in the past. You know, he would he was just he was a person who I kind of knew from Twitter, and I just seen his name in an email or two, and then he would he would send a check in just randomly out of the blue. You know, a pretty sizable check, and I'd always do a double take and be like, "Wow, this Mike guy really loves the site. This is fantastic. Let me send him a let me send him a postcard saying thank you." <laughs> uh, and so we really you know we really aligned. I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't work with just any investor for sure. Uh, and but you know, mm. with Mike, he was just sort of perfect. I mean, we really aligned. He he's an open source software person. He. He never got into the software biz to, to make a ton of money. Uh, he did it because he loved it and he wanted to help people do things. And it just so happens that, you know, some of the software he wrote was very, very useful to a, a number of people uh, and it's and it's valuable. So so there you go. He made enough money now where he wants to help help the things that he that he loves. Uh, and yeah, I'll, I'll never forget when he just said to me, you know, he, he knew he knows that he knows what Mike Portland's going through. He's also a newsie. He's a news junkie. And he understands that, you know, for instance, in America, uh, well, even, even where you live, uh, Carlton, there are a lot of people that fund the media and depending on who has the most money, a lot of times that media is going to be stronger and it's going to be able to spread its message more in America. We have a huge problem with that, you know, with disinformation and media that's very partisan and, and Mike intentionally wanted to put money into media for that reason, uh, because he knows, uh, without, without his help, Bike Portland couldn't survive because there's just no model for for what Bike Portland does. It doesn't make sense financially, and I've I've certainly felt that. That's one of the reasons why I was getting to a point of, of very high stress because all of our advertising is gone. You know that that's all goes to Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook or or in, you know wherever local businesses are putting their money these days. They're not spending money on Bike Portland like they used to, 
And so we've had to rely on um, individual subscribers, which is great. But that's if you want to build a business uh, and you don't have the ability to have thousands and thousands and thousands of subscribers, which is kind of a chicken and egg. I mean, people want to see really great content and really, really amazing things from the media provider in order for them to subscribe. But you can't create that stuff unless you have a lot of money to have reporters. And, you know, so it's chicken and egg. Uh, so, you know, I couldn't rely just on our, our great uh, subscribers. Um, so something had to give. And it was Mike. It was Mike. Mike had to give. So, um, yeah. Is Mike hands on, hands off? <laughs> Mike is hands off. Absolutely. You know, we, we talked, we talked really carefully about that. Uh, he, he doesn't have any, uh, there's no return technically, right. That he has to get, he does own a share of, of the bike of the pedal town media stock, which is our, our parent company. Uh, he does own a share of the company, but there's no sort of like, you know, number that he has to get back technically, uh, in order to, you know, where he's going to pull out kind of thing. So, uh, he, he, he wants to see change happen. He trusts me because he knows Bike Portland and he knows what I've been putting into it all these years. Uh, and we're just going to have to see, you know, where that goes. Is he, does he re-up, uh, you know, next when the year comes up? Uh, I've already had a conversation with another investor that, I, you know, Mike and I have uh, talked about. So someone else, after they saw the news about uh, Bike Portland getting an equity investment, someone else in the community stepped up and said, hey, I'm interested. So I've, I've been talking to that person. So it, it's it's a different uh, it's a different uh, era for Bike Portland now. I'm trying to. I'm talking to people to, to help with the site and do different things. I'm, I've, I've hired someone uh, to do to do some stuff, and I've got a freelance budget, and I've, and I've upped our game in some other ways, and it's just going to be a continuation of that now. Including the site redesign, despite yes, that. Yes, uh, of course. Well, that, that was another person who was a bit nervous. I probably was not. <laughs> I have a really great web web person who's who's that does all my tech stuff and my, my WordPress design, and uh, I was able to email him and say, hey, you don't have to worry about the big upgrade and redesign now because I'm, I'm, we're good for it. <laughs> and then tell us about the hires then that you've made. So, because pretty, I mean, when I was, you can hear my dog there. Sorry, yeah, yeah. when uh, when when I was last in in Portland, you had Michael was doing mm-hmm. like uh, reporting for you. So, have you got somebody like Michael? Uh, not really. I have a different person. Uh, there's nobody really like Michael. He he's moved on now. Uh, that's going to be the next person I'm going to be looking for. But what I've done, mm. I've, I've hired someone named Maritza Arango. She's really fantastic. Uh, the first person I ended up hiring was someone to do like events. So, uh, events editor is the position, and it's someone who is um, you know making sure our calendar, our events calendar is full with all the pedal Palooza events and all the other things mm-hmm. that are going on. Because I think a community calendar is a real value add that Bike Portland can provide. Uh, this is a calendar that has you know everything on it, not just bike rides, but advocacy meetings and everything. So that's one of her main tasks. Uh, but Maritza's also been doing like some lot of social media stuff, and she's helping me with some other design things. So yeah, I'm just trying to hire you know smart people that can that can add value to the site and, and, and take some load off me of thinking about everything and having to do everything uh, on my own. But the next hire, I think the big one that's really going to change the game is going to be more of a, like an editor position, someone mm-hmm. who can be a reporter who, who knows the issue pretty well, who can go out, get a story, talk to people, you know, do, do real reporting. I mean, that's, that's always been sort of the bread and butter in some ways of, of bike Portland is that we can actually do real reporting that, that compares then and competes and compares with the local, the other local media outlets, uh, you know, for, for our topic, for these mobility mm-hmm. topics and transportation topics. So, you know, when I can find someone like that, if I can find someone like that, that's going to be huge because that takes, as you know, doing reporting and doing it right and meeting people's expectations, which after 16 years are really, really high. Uh, Bike Portland really can't make mistakes. Uh, and Bike Portland, you know, people just expect a certain depth, but it's increasingly difficult to deliver on that depth uh, if it's just me because, you know, my I have a million other things I need to do to, with the site and managing things. Uh, so the ability to, you know, talk to five sources for an article and and take a day or two to write something, which, you know, for most reporters, they'll take a week probably to do a story, if not longer, but my average is probably an hour or two, you know, so that doesn't really, that doesn't really work when, when you have the community looking at you saying, hey, we really want to, you know, change the narrative, we need you to hold this group accountable and this agency accountable, that takes work, and it's going to take finding someone and paying them a good rate to keep them around, so uh, once Mike mm. Portland can have someone like that, it's going to really, really up our game and change things a lot. So when you were talking about some of the things that you, you, you think of doing there, I was then thinking to, to like the UK context, and that is we've got like um, advocacy organisations like in, in Cambridge Cycling Campaign, for instance, mm-hmm. it'd be the second biggest uh, campaigning org 
in the UK. And then you've got the London cycling campaign again. So it's all of the things that you're doing will be coalesced mm. into bodies with, with a reasonable um, number mm. of uh, volunteers for a start and then uh, paid uh, staff members. Both mm. those organisations have got paid staff members. And it's like an advocate. They don't need a Jonathan Mouse to hold mm. them together. You know, they, they kind of mm. exist above and beyond, you know, a, a person. So mm. is that something that you think um, Bike Portland can grow into? I'm not saying for any second that you're going to be disappearing and no. going away, but just is that what it needs? It needs, if you, this is going to continue in 50 years time, it needs to be not just you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I definitely see that. That's what I want too, for not just reasons of my own, you know, mental and physical health, but um, because of who I am. I mean, I'm a, I'm a white middle-aged homeowner guy, you know, I'm just like this classic person who has sort of, you know, controlled and handled things uh, for a long time. And that is really limiting. That puts up some red flags for me in terms of like, what's like Portland's perspective? How do we make decisions about what we cover and how we cover? And that's limiting. So that's another big reason why I do actually want to not be as involved. Um, and yeah, it would be great if I could, you know, right now I have my, my eyes really on year 20. I've always done, I've always been this way. I was, I was really looking forward to year 10. We had a big party. It was a real momentous thing. We launched, I think we launched our subscription program at 10. I'm forgetting now, but anyway, we all, we've always had these milestones and 10 was a huge one for me. We got there and we pushed through 15 was not quite as exciting just because it's not as round of a number, but the 20 year mark, is going to be, or, or I should say 2020, you know, the 20 year mark of doing this, which would be, I guess, 2025. Uh, so your 20 is going to be a big thing for me. And I'm really already looking at that as saying, okay, that's when everything is going to be in the vision that I have right now in terms of what Bike Portland is. And, and I hope by that time, I'm definitely just like, you know, this old codger in the background who's, <laughs> you know, maybe writing an opinion every now and again, or blasting some, <laughs> some agency, but I'd love to just see it, you know, being great and, and happening, you know, without me at that point. Like a Mark Sarney type figure. And for anybody who doesn't know Mark Sarney, he's like the guy that co-founded Bicycle Retailer, the trade magazine in the US, and now just writes a grumpy old column in the back. <laughs> or do something else. I mean, there's so many other things to do. You know, I've got, I've got my kids and my family and stuff who I've never uh, just have not given enough attention to compared to this, this uh, work. So, you know, that's another, that's another big part of it. I'll have probably mm. grandkids by then. So. <laughs> <laughs> so in year 20 which uh is four years away is that right yeah uh, uh how old will you be uh let's see i'd be 50 years old oh that's, that's a big, big milestone then <laughs> so that's like a 50 and uh a... yeah okay yeah. yeah i can i can see why 2025 that's, uh... 1975 yeah it just hit me as i said that too so shoot i've got i've got four <laughs> four years now to really get this thing dialed in so uh clock is ticking <sighs> That's cool. Um, so tell us about, apart from the hire that you made uh, mm-hmm. and maybe the changes, because you've got a podcast now. So y- yeah. your, your competition all of a sudden. Uh, well, so tell us about the podcast. What's what's going to be on the podcast? How often is it going to come out? What yeah, are you doing with yes. that? Yeah, so the Bike Portland podcast, we actually had one back in, uh, I believe it was 2015, 2016, you know, a couple dozen episodes when I had Michael Anderson and Lillian Karabek, mm. another friend was producing it for us. It was, it was great. I thought we had a good podcast, but they moved on. And kind of the story of Bike Portland is I didn't have sort of the money and the ability to keep them around and sort of pay them. So they moved on to doing other great things. And I just had to let the podcast just, you know, phase out. Um, so here I am trying to restarting it. So last month I, I restarted it back on my own. And in the meantime, of course, there's lots of new tools uh, and the, the, the sort of delivery methods of podcasts have gotten a lot easier and better. And everybody's doing it, of course, now. So um, I, I relaunched it and it's been really great. Uh, I'm starting out by just interviewing folks uh, in the community that I think are interesting or, or have something important that needs to be shared. Um, but that's not where I see it going. I, I would like to say do it much more often. I'd love to do it once a week. At this point, I'm probably maybe twice a month, hopefully. Um, mm-hmm. But what I want to see it evolve into is more of a news-oriented podcast and less of a just interview podcast. And again, I don't see myself as necessarily having to be the host. I've already talked to Maritza. She may do one. She's from Bogota. She's a native Spanish speaker. So I was hoping that she could maybe interview someone in Spanish. So it's open to anybody that works uh, for Bike Portland. So uh, it won't always be me doing interviews. I kind of started with that just because it was comfortable and sort of easy for me to just talk to people and record it. Um, but the, this news podcast is something I've really been thinking about a lot in terms of a vision where I want to share original audio. Think of it like 
I don't know if you watch, I mean, it's more, not necessarily a BBC style, more of like, more of one of the cable news shows in, in America, like maybe Rachel Maddow or something where, let's say I would do an intro, but then I would share uh, audio of like a local press conference or other local newsmakers saying something in a meeting, meeting, and then I could, you know, com- comment on that and then maybe bring in a guest uh, of recent news and we would talk about that. So it'd be something that was definitely more relevant in terms of its uh, timeliness, like something that happened a day or two before we could record something. And the podcast would be more of a news podcast with, you know, more analysis of something that just happened. That to me would be really the ultimate dream. And, and I think that really reflects kind of like some of my visions for Bike Portland in general. I mean, right now with the amount of tools and how easy they are to use and just this sort of digital publishing, you know, continuing revolution, you know, all these 15 years, uh, it's so exciting because I don't think it would be that difficult for Bike Portland to do, you know, live reporting you know, remote broadcasts from places or, or even just, mm-hmm. you know, turning around news stories and doing video of them. I mean, all that stuff's really not that far away. It's pretty close for even an outfit like Bike Portland with our extremely limited budget to do. Once you have sort of that minimal equipment buy-in and you've got enough skilled people to do it, I mean, you know, with Instagram Live, Facebook Live, right, all these different uh, places to, you know, you, our YouTube channel has about, you know, I think around 500 subscribers now. So that's another uh, uh, channel for us. Uh, we can put that stuff out there, you know, so that's what's exciting to me right now about Bike Portland is that we've spent 16 years building all these different platforms. Uh, and now there's the equipment and sort of ease of producing this kind of content, I think, has improved so much. And it's so exciting. Now we just need to go out there and get the news and figure out how to package it in a way that's really interesting and compelling and different and sort of continues to like meet and exceed what people uh, expect from Bike Portland. And if we do that, uh, I think it could be a super exciting next couple of years. And one of the strengths you've always had has been your fantastic photography. So I've always been impressed mm. by the photographs you have on your side. And, and not just the photographs, but well, also like the galleries of photographs. So you're not just having one you know, killer photograph. You can then dig down and get loads of photographs. Well, yeah, I appreciate that. Thanks. Um, I mean, that, that was an intentional thing. I mean, I realized from an early, early, early time in Bike Portland that photographs was something that I could compete on right, mm. Mike Portland could actually compete with anyone on photography. I, I won't say anyone. Sorry, uh, you know Reuters and you know AP photographs and War Zones. Obviously, I mean I'm still like you know sort of an amateur, but for the most part, on the topic that we were that we cared about and the community that Mike Portland covers, we had images that impressed people and excited people. And I knew because I've been on the internet a very long time and I understand how the internet works. If you do that kind of content, you, you have to impress people. People have to look at your stuff and go, oh, that's that's better. And I thought oh, that, that's different. That's No one's doing that. And no one was doing the type of photography of bike culture that Bike Portland was doing when we first started doing it, right? So that was like an intentional thing that I realized, wow, this is how we can sort of stand and, and get people's respect and have people consider us as a real authoritative uh, you know, place for news. Uh, and that's, yeah, now I'm trying to basically replicate what I did with still photographs, I'm trying to do an audio content, whether it's a podcast or otherwise, I'm trying to do that with video. I'm trying to make, you know, news videos and other videos that are helpful to the same level that we did our photographs so that people are impressed by them. And I think, you know, if, if my Portland's able to do that, it's going to be pretty fantastic. We're going to keep people around. And as you know, the competitive environment online is is extreme. Uh, it's nothing like it was when I started. When Bike Portland started, we were really the only game in town on this topic. I mean, if you wanted cool pictures of bike culture and bike news and stuff, it's like you come to Bike Portland. That's also why a lot of businesses gave us money to advertise, which they don't now. And the competitive environment's a lot different now. Everybody's got their, you know, social media feeds with a lot of great content. So you've really got to you've really got to bring it. And that was kind of part of my pitch to you know to my to any investor, including Mike, was like, hey. You know, we're, we're competing with people's established social media networks uh, where they're seeing amazing videos and photographs from all their friends. How are we going to differentiate and add value to the community if we don't have great equipment, great reporters, super smart people on the cutting edge of what's going on? We're going to have to deliver that to keep people around. And, you know, Bike Portland's nothing if there's no people around. So that's what we do. <laughs> Jonathan, that's been fascinating. Thank you very much. And at this point in the show, I normally say... You know, where can people get in touch with you? What what's you know what websites? Do you have? <laughs> but you've been talking about that throughout the show. Is there right. anything where we could we could? I mean, maybe your personal because you're on Twitter as a in your personal capacity as well as Bike Portland, yeah. So yeah, so, so give us give us a bit, give us a few places <laughs> where they can get get your stuff. 
Well, people can most the most personal stuff I do is on is on Twitter at at, at Jonathan underscore Moz. Uh, so J O N A T H A N underscore M A U S on Twitter is a good place uh, to find some of my my stuff. And I, it's not personal. I don't do a lot of dogs and family stuff. I do kind of keep it to the topic, even on there. Uh, so I, I don't do a lot of personal stuff online. I don't do really Facebook or Instagram much personally because I, I don't know. It's kind of like the the cobbler, you know, has the worst, the cobbler's family has the worst <laughs> shoes, you know, like I'm online all day. And so I don't feel like doing that on my personal level. So <laughs> that's the way to find me. Thanks to Jonathan Moores there. And thanks to you for listening to the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. Show notes and more can be found on the spokesmen.com. Our next show is a half hour chat with the founders of the upscale Leblanc Joyrides. That'll be with you next week. But meanwhile, get out there and ride.